There were these two men that were quite competitive with each other. They were both about the same size and strength, but one day they wanted to see who could chop more wood in a day. And though they were approximately the same, in terms of ability, their methods were very different. The first man just went full bore all day. He didn't stop. He didn't slow down. He just kept chopping. He took a couple sips of water here and there, but that's pretty much it. He just went all day long. The second man, he took some breaks. And every hour he would stop, get a drink of water. Every couple hours he'd have a bit of a meal. And sometimes he'd even just rest, just occasionally. So when we come down to the end of the day, who chopped more wood? It was the guy that took breaks. No way. So how is this possible? Well, that's, that's what the first man wanted to know. He was actually pretty upset about it, and he came to him all flustered. And the, the second man said, well, yeah, you saw me taking breaks, but what you didn't see is that every time that I was resting, I was actually sharpening my axe. And what I want to pose to us today is that in resting and in prayer and fasting, we are sharpened. This is a time when God sharpens us, working on our efficacy and our even changing our surroundings and what is happening. And so that's a bit of what I want to talk about today. Father God, would you use this time for our good and for your glory? God, would you awaken your truth within us? We give you this time, Lord. Amen. So a proper good morning to you all. This is your chance to... Thank you. I actually mean it. Like, this is a conversation a bit, eh? No, I'm so glad to see all of you. Church is so much better when you're here. And there is a richness that happens when we all come and worship together and share in God's word together, share in communion together. And church is better because you're here. So thank you for being here. As you may know, we are in the middle of a series, or actually, we're finally nearing the end of a series on misfits that we have been in since September. And we've been loving our series on misfits. We, <laughs> we have, we've seen all different types of people. Now, Nehemiah, who we're talking about today, he's a very different kind of misfit. He's actually, by most accounts, fairly ordinary. He's not like Caleb, Zechariah, and Elizabeth, who could have easily told themselves that they were too old to be used by God anymore. But God had other plans for them. He's not like Samson or Rahab, who had very colored pasts. Now, maybe they could have told themselves a story that their reputation would prevent them from being used by God. But we kind of find out that God doesn't use perfect people. He uses willing people. No, he's much more ordinary than that. But 
he is still a misfit because he doesn't necessarily fit the mold of who we would think would have a book of the Bible written about them, written after them. He doesn't have any sort of a divine calling. The, the clouds don't part and God calls him by name. He doesn't have the position of a priest. He doesn't have the office of a prophet. He is pretty much a working class guy. I think this is really relatable though. Maybe you've told yourself this story and I used to tell myself this story that if I really wanted to be used by God, I would have to be in full-time ministry. And that is, that is a lie. God doesn't, use, God doesn't exclusively use people in ministry. Being in ministry is great, but he doesn't just use people in ministry. He uses everyday people who give God their yes. Nehemiah gave God his yes and chose to live in obedience to what God was calling him to do. And so let's turn to the book of Nehemiah and see just kind of what happens here. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 393. So a bit of historical background here. It was foretold or prophesied by Moses that a time would come when the Israelites would fall into such a degree of sin that they would be exiled, but, that, but then they would also return. So here's where we are in the story. We have had a return by Zerubbabel and then another one by Ezra, and now here is the beginning of the story of the third return by Nehemiah. I'm going to give you a brief overview of the first six chapters of Nehemiah, and then we're going to look at how it all happened, how it all started. So it begins with Nehemiah getting a word from his brother. His brother says that the people who have returned, the people who have returned to Jerusalem, the conditions for them are terrible. It's terrible living conditions. The walls are broken down and the gates have been burned up by fire. It's a bad scene. So Nehemiah talks to the king. He gets some resources. He goes and inspects the wall. When he gets to Jerusalem, he goes and inspects the wall and it's, it's pretty significant. It's pretty bad. They get to work. They go and start working on it. And what's interesting is when they get about halfway through, when the walls are about half height, that's when opposition ramps up. This is something I find interesting because what does the enemy care if we're being ineffective? It's when we begin to be effective for God that opposition comes, that discouragement starts seeping in. And we see this discouragement come from Sambalat and Tobiah and they come to bring discord of all kinds. They make things confusing and they make things scary. They try to distract them from their mission. They discourage them by saying that even if a fox were to try to climb on that wall, the wall would come down. And the Israelites are discouraged. 
but they don't stop. They keep on going. They actually have to change their tact, and once they get about halfway done building the walls, they arm themselves. They, they divide into two different groups. One of the groups is on patrol, and the other group continues building the wall. And even the group that is building the wall has a sword on them. They don't even go to get a drink of water without having a sword on them. There is this legal financial case that Nehemiah deals with, which I am going to talk about next week. And then after that, we see some tricks and some temptations and traps that Sambalat and Tobiah try to set for Nehemiah. Now, what is really interesting is Nehemiah is so sharp. He has sharpened his axe so much that his discernment doesn't allow him to fall for it. He sees right through the tricks and traps that they're trying to set for him because he's sharp. They continue going and they end up building the wall in 52 days, which is absolutely incredible. But none of it happens without the first two chapters. And so we're going to start in Nehemiah 1. Quick fun fact, historically speaking, of all the historical books of the Old Testament, this is the latest. It happens around 430 BC. And the book of Malachi, or 432, book of Malachi is about 430. So this is about, this is the end of the Old, right at the end of the Old Testament. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, I, while I was at the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those that have survived the exile are back in the province, are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire." When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, that last word, that last phrase there, then I said. This is actually really powerful. The prayer that Daniel read earlier is a beautiful and magnificent prayer. But it didn't just come out of him. It wasn't a spontaneous prayer. This was something that had been stewing within Nehemiah for days. It says for several days he fasted and prayed. Now, what do we know about fasting and praying? We know that when you pray about something several times, continually, and seeking God's will in the matter... What is of the Lord becomes clarified. So as Nehemiah was praying, the things that were of the Lord got illuminated within him. And they became more clear. If we want to know what God's will is, we pray about the same thing several times. God's truth is then illuminated within us. It's almost as if we're following a trail of breadcrumbs. 
when we find a breadcrumb of, breadcrumb of truth, so to speak, we get excited about it because we can tell that God's truth is on this. It then becomes easier to find the next breadcrumb of truth and we begin to decide, determine what God's will is for a situation. Nehemiah didn't just pray this. This was the result of days of fasting and praying that this was the result of. We can also have this in, in group prayers. When someone says something that you know is in line with God's character and nature and God's heart for the lost, it becomes evident in, in you. Someone explained Holy Spirit's presence to me as a revelation of truth. And when we experience, when we feel Holy Spirit's presence, oftentimes that is a revelation of God's truth, that this is a truth that God has for you. This, this prayer is an amazing prayer, but it, it didn't just come out of nowhere. Now, I want to look at this prayer. First thing I notice is that he starts actually the way that Jesus instructs us to pray, by recognizing who we're talking to and where that person is. Next thing I want all of us to do is as I'm reading this prayer, let's look at any commonalities, any themes, if we see any themes in all this. Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people. Now check this out. Whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer your servant is praying to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor, by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And who is this man? Well, he was cupbearer for the king. Nehemiah's prayer is a prayer about remembering. What is kind of, what may strike you as odd is that Nehemiah is trying to get God to remember things. He's bringing up God's promises back to God. God, remember you promised this. Does God really need to be reminded of that? Nehemiah needed to be reminded of that. God laid something on Nehemiah's heart. And Nehemiah knew it was too big for him. So instead of trying to look within himself, he turned to God. 
Nehemiah needed to be reminded of God's promises because if God promises something, God can fulfill that promise. This was not for ne- this was this prayer was not for God. This prayer was for Nehemiah to understand and align himself with God's will. What happens next is actually pretty incredible. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to, for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. We can easily pass that by, but let's think about how remarkable this is. Here we have the king asking one of his servants why he looks sad. What does the king care? Why would the king care? Why should he care at all? He's the king. He could probably just command him to be happy or to smile or to not be like that around. Why does the king actually care enough to ask him why he is sad? This is the beginning of the favor that Nehemiah was praying for. Nehemiah was praying for favor from God. Now, we have to believe that when we pray, we actually attain an advantage, that prayer is an advantage for us. This is the first step. Nehemiah fasted and prayed for several days before he even thought about addressing the king. He could have been doing anything. He could have been trying to rally support. He could have been trying to rally supplies, troops, finances, whatever. He could have been trying to do things on his own strength, but Nehemiah believed that the most powerful thing that he could do was to pray. And lo and behold, an opportunity presents itself. Would this opportunity have happened if Nehemiah had not prayed? I believe that God can work in people's minds. He can work in people's hearts. Even unbelievers, he can work within them to allow them to notice certain things, to allow them to experience certain things. And when we partner with God in prayer, that becomes accessible. God brings that forth. It is the sharpening of the ax. It is an advantage. It is a massive advantage. Ne- Nehemiah's admittance of his feelings here is really awesome. And I want to spend more time on it than I will, but he simply says, I was very much afraid. Oh, I love when people do it scared. When you are scared to do something, but you move forward anyway, that is amazing. And Nehemiah was very afraid, but he kept going forward anyway. He didn't let his fear stop him. So he was very afraid, very much afraid, but he said to the king, 
May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed with fire? Check this out. Then the king said to him, What is it you want? Whew. Have you ever had a moment where you just know it's so big? This is a big moment. Nehemiah is having this right now. This is the defining moment of the entire book of Nehemiah. It's right now. It's what is going to happen in the next few minutes is going to determine the rest of the book and also Jewish history. Sure, there would be, there'd be struggles after this. There was going to be a lot of effort required after this, but this is the pivotal moment. And Nehemiah recognizes that. So what does he do about it? Maybe you have a moment like this. Maybe you have a friend who is struggling with addiction or is caught in some sort of a sin, and now this friend comes to you, and they're in a place where they are being receptive, where they're ready to listen. What do you do in a moment like that? Maybe you're in a job interview and you realize the importance of a moment. What do you do? Where do you turn? Maybe you're having a moment of powerful vulnerability with your spouse or other loved one. Maybe, maybe you're scared. Maybe it's a very scary moment for you and you realize the significance of it, but you, you're just you're so filled with fear. What do you do in a moment like that? Well, see what Nehemiah did. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. Isn't that cool? He's mid-conversation at this point, but he just takes a second to sharpen his axe. Understanding the weight of this situation, the importance of this situation, he turns to God and he asks God to come into the, to the situation. I pause there because we don't know what he prayed. We can guess it was brief. Maybe it was something as simple as, God help me. God, I need you. These, these micro prayers, when they, when they are a prayer of the heart, small as they may be, they're admitting our understanding. Our understanding that he is God and that we are not. It is coming to acceptance and belief that God is infinitely more powerful than we are and that he can do infinitely more than we can do. And so Nehemiah prayed. And what was the result of that prayer? <laughs> he asks for some provisions and he asks for some safe passage. He receives provisions, safe passage, and an armed escort. More than you can ask, think, or imagine, eh? 
So there are two underlying principles that we see here in this passage in Nehemiah. And the first one is a return on investment. What you doing, bud? Okay. The first one is a return on investment. I said earlier that Nehemiah could have been doing anything during that time, but he chose to pray and fast. For our purposes today, we can say pray and or fast. Now, for anyone who's ever done a fast, how is it that you feel? How do you feel when you've fasted for some amount of time? Hungry, yeah. Matt? So, so, so there is something about receiving in, while, while fasting when we do it with religious reasons. How, how else do we feel? You can, you can feel really alert, yeah. Yeah. So, so you guys are giving the, the right answers. I want to hear the bad answers. Give, give me the bad answers. How do we feel, like negatively? <laughs> we feel tired, right? We feel weak. We can definitely feel grumpy. I get grumpy. These are some good answers. These are some good answers. I, I like this. Thank you. I just had to say give me wrong answers, and you guys, I'm going to remember this. This is good. There is an amazing exchange that happens, and this is the underlying principle, is the return on investment. Now, Nehemiah believed in this return on investment with prayer and fasting. It's we give up our strength for his strength. We give up our comfort, because it's uncomfortable, for his comfort. We give up our strength, our energy. We give up our focus. We give up what we have to receive what he has. A.W. Tozer put it like this. I've said it before and I'll say it again. How completely satisfying to turn from our own limitations to a God who has none. This is what we enter into with prayer and fasting. It is the best return on investment. We see this in Jesus. After Jesus was baptized, he went into the wilderness to pray and fast for 40 days. Eugene Peterson in the message says that in order to prepare for the temptation that was coming, he fasted and prayed. Jesus, being fully God and fully man, models for us what it is to give up our own strength to receive God's strength. What was the result? It says in Luke that when he went into the wilderness, he went in filled with the Spirit. And when he returned, he returned in the power of the Spirit. He went from fullness to power. In Luke 5, we see that Jesus recognized that the power of God was there to heal the sick. Jesus also models for us what it looks like to be sharpened. And he was sharpened 
to God's will, to learning God's will, to see what the Father was doing and being able to act with God in doing it. Jesus models for us what it looks like to give up of ourselves and to be sharpened by him, by prayer and fasting. Nehemiah was a working class guy. He was a working class guy with an incredible commitment to prayer and he chose to be obedient to what God was doing. He didn't have a position in a church. He wasn't a prophet. He didn't have a divine calling. But he chose to partner with God in what God was doing in the world around us, around him. We have the same option today. When God lays something on your heart, what do you do about it? Nehemiah prayed, and sometimes we can get in the comfort of prayer. Yeah, I'm, I'm praying about it. I'm praying about God's will. But Nehemiah didn't stop there. He saw that God had an opportunity for him, and then he entered into it, and he acted. He acted out in obedience. The story for me and I'm sure for you as well, is challenging, convicting, but also encouraging. It's encouraging because sometimes the prayer that he prays are so short. And I can do that. I can do a short prayer of God help me. God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for the story of Nehemiah, for the example that he gets to be to us. God, we thank you that we can, in fact, turn from our own limitations to you. God, we thank you that prayer is the best return on investment. We thank you, Father. Amen.